0: Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, and WMBR in Cambridge. Today we have interviews from Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, and Ottawa. First, we have a Massachusetts Minute with Galen Mook, the Executive Director of Massachusetts Bike Coalition and Bike Talk co host
1: Thanks for having me. Um, We've got a lot going on in Massachusetts. This time of year, every other year, is the end of the legislative session here at the state house, So we are pushing our major priorities, including our e-bike bills, which would define electric bicycles and incentivize them, trying to get some rebates back for them. Um, And then we're also pursuing our bike safety and traffic safety bills, which would require three-foot passing at a minimum, um, side guards on trucks, and data collection and an omnibus bill is like a traffic safety bill. And we have six days to get them out of their committees and on their way to the governor's desk. Been a very busy session. We're trying to really focus on uh, the big picture stuff statewide. We need to get drivers to understand that three foot is a minimum to give vulnerable road users out there. Uh, and one of the biggest problems we have in Massachusetts is we don't have good data. So this bill would require police departments um, and really all EMS to start collecting bicyclist, pedestrian, and vulnerable road user data into a statewide database. So, advocates like myself and those working in the administration can actually get numbers that are attached to some of the work we're doing.
0: Thanks, Kaylin. What else is going on?
1: We're pursuing our rail trails and connect- connecting our rail trail network, and we're celebrating it with something called the Golden Spike Conference which is happening in Gilbertville, Massachusetts. It's a small, tiny little like post-industrial town in the center of the state, but it's a town that's going to be part of what's called the Mass Central Rail Trail, which one day when it's built out, hopefully in the next decade or so, Nick, it's gonna be 110 miles worth of rail trail bike path, completely safe, protected, and contiguous all the way from Boston to Northampton. From there, it'll connect to a bike path that'll take you all the way to New Haven, Connecticut. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles that will be connected by the Mass Central Rail Trail. Advocates and rail trail friends of groups are gonna meet up. It's kind of a celebration of where we've come, but also how far we have yet to go to really kind of build our entire network out.
0: The legislation and the trails, I think are at least part of the reason why Massachusetts is number one.
1: Yeah, we got ranked the first bike-friendly state in the union, um, thanks to the League of American Bicyclists. I think a lot of that is policy-driven as well. So we have a DOT that has policies around complete streets. We have a governor who's funded it. We have legislators um, who are really pursuing it. I think structurally, we have policies and a framework that we can be looked to at other states about, well, okay, where are the priorities of these policies? Where's the funding come from? At Mass Bike, we do think big picture. Um, we support all the bike lanes and potholes getting fixed, don't get me wrong, but we keep our eye on the the big needle moving um, measures. And I think that's what the league was doing as well with this designation.
0: California's number four, not too far behind.
1: CalDOT's got some good policies. And if they can play out in the next five or 10 years, we'll see. But a lot of it comes down to, will the administration really pursue some of the policies and and mode shift? And though there may be the will, is there the way?
0: Good question. And thank you for giving us the intro to this episode.
1: Uh, This is a good episode. I look forward to hearing it all. All right, Galen. Thanks, Nick. Have a good one. Stay cool out there.
0: You too. Our first interview is with TV director and bike collector, Aaron Lipstadt
2: good afternoon and welcome to bike talk i'm taylor nichols and today we have a special guest aaron Lipstadt, who is a bicycle collector and a fictionado of handmade bikes and bikes from all over the world we're kind of gonna pick up where we left off in the interview with jody rosen on his wonderful book two wheels good the history and mystery of the bicycle so aaron i'm really glad that you're joining us today Because you taught me a lot about the real artistry of some handmade bikes. And I wonder if you could quickly introduce to the audience a little bit of where the handmade bikes came from. Because I think we all know Schwinn and Huffy and those kind of things. So where did the handmade bike world begin?
3: Well, it began when bikes began. They're all handmade. And then we went to the big industrial period, which I'm going to skip over because I'm not that familiar with what happened in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And I want to say, first of all, I started as a bike rider. I'm still a bike rider. I have a lot of bikes and I ride them all. They're all my size and they get ridden. Let me just make that clear. Right. I'm not just interested in wall hangers. I ride all my bikes. So as far as my understanding of it, it really started in the U.S. with Albert Eisentraut, who's a Bay Area bike builder. I honestly don't know exactly what got him started, but he was definitely the first one that I'm aware of that really started in the European tradition of custom bikes, custom tubing, sourcing tubing for the size of the rider and how the bike was going to be ridden, but primarily for racing bikes. And what year was this? I think he started in the late 50s. Okay.
2: So this is after the mass building of bikes for kids and Schwinn's and all that. And he was building racing bikes.
3: Yeah. The European tradition, the racing bikes are like hand-built for Tour de France and those kind of long stage races. They're primarily Italian and French builders. And some of them, like Peugeot, became big powerhouse, multi-industry companies. What were some of the other names from Europe? Raleigh, the English company, which took over a bunch of different smaller brands, Colnago, which started out as a single guy, Ernesto Colnago, and became a huge company. Masi, similarly, one guy, started building bikes and turned into an international company.
2: And just really quick, what were the years of those? Like, when did Colnago and Masi start building
3: their bikes? They really started around the early 50s after the oh, war. okay. I assume that sporting activity started up again after World War II. The tour started in, what, 1915 or something?
2: Yeah, I think it's 109 years this year. In fact, July 8th is, I think, the sixth stage of the 22 tour. Yeah,
3: but Eisentrout is the first guy that I became aware of as a bike builder. And I don't think he was even building at the time when I started getting interested in it. But a lot of the, certainly the West Coast builders, the older generation of the West Coast builders started either influenced by or directly apprenticed to Albert Eisentrout.
2: Oh, okay. And who were some of those guys, just in case I know some of those names?
3: Bruce Gordon, who was building till quite recently, Ed Linton. There was that sort of Bay Area group, and Bruce became the most well-known of that school. Right.
2: We hear a lot about how in that area, Northern California, is when mountain bikes started. Is this at all branching out into mountain bikes, or was this a separate thing?
3: I think it was pretty much a separate thing. Mountain bikes was guys like Joe Breeze in the East Coast, Tom Ritchie in the West Coast, Gary Fisher. These were guys who were basically taking kids' bikes, clunkers, and welding them so they could go downhill really fast. was a much more daredevil, sort of the equivalent of street skateboard. How fast can we go and how much abuse can we put on these bikes before the forks break or flatten out? Isentrott was much more in the European road bike stage race tradition.
2: And what makes a handmade bike special? I mean, what is it about a handmade bike that is different from a factory-made?
3: Two broad things. One is, certainly if you have any specific size issues, but even if you don't, You get on a trainer with the guy who's going to build your bike, and he watches you ride, and he'll say, okay, ride, ride, ride hard. Okay, now just spin. And then he'll make tweaks on this rig where he can adjust the handlebars, he can adjust the saddle, and take your leg measurements, and take your torso. So all these things are like where you get on the bike, and you feel like, ah, that moment of, oh yeah, this is right.
2: Yeah, like an old shoe, right?
3: Yeah, a suit, anything that's made for your measurements is going to be like... Oh, you know, it's right there. You never feel like yeah. I have to make an adjustment. Now, I have to say, personally, I'm not like six eight and have super long legs. In my own collection, I have bikes that are as small as 57, 58 centimeter to 62, 64 centimeters. Yeah. I can accommodate it. The second thing, of course, is if you have someone make you a bike, it's going to be whatever you want it to be. You choose who's going to build your bike. You choose obviously what color it is and it's going to fit you. But then you can say. I really like the way this guy files the logs. I really like the way this guy makes his dropouts. I really want something that's really super light. Just like with any craftsman whose work you respect, you can say, oh, that's fantastic. That's beautiful. I like to look at that and hop on that. And when I go to the coffee shop, I park it and it's like, oh man, that is gorgeous.
2: (laughs) You're showing off. Well,
3: to me, yes, there's certainly some of that. But I'm not trying to do it to impress anybody, but enjoy it myself, just like you would a hat that fits really well or custom watch. And you just look at it, and you go, oh, it's I beautiful. love that. You know, it's beautiful. Somebody made that.
2: Right. Well, what aspects of the handmade bikes do you look at that are beautiful well, What things jump yeah. out?
3: So I had an idea at some point. I'd seen a picture of this French country bike, an upright bike with flat bars and had these beautiful curved tubes, these beautiful fenders, and the lines were so beautiful. I said, I'd like to get a bike like that. And I literally went to several builders. I sent them pictures. which was like a 1948 single speed with a big chain guard. It was obviously a very heavy bike, but it was just like the country priest can go to visitors. And several people said, you know, that's not what I do. And I finally found Josh Muir. He was making all kinds of weird stuff. He's another one of these guys, single practitioner, got a workshop in his backyard. The main feature of this bike are these really exaggerated stainless steel tubes that have an extreme bend in them. It's really for looks more than anything else, but I just thought what a beautiful design that is. And then what Josh did to go above and beyond was he made this rear rack that curves kind of to parallel the wheel. And even the stage for the rack have a little bend to them. So that's and an how many speeds of- is it? It's an eight-speed internal Japanese gear hub. So how do you change gears? It's It's got a twist shifter on the handlebar. And Josh made the stem as well and the front rack as well. And you can't really see it, but there's a kickstand that's built into that front rack. It's not really a traditional kickstand. It flips down so the front wheel doesn't move. So that whole thing swivels down and the bike sits on it. And that's the kind of thing that you have to go to somebody who can say, I can do this. And besides the fact that the details of the lugs are beautiful. And so that's what I was really interested in is what's called lug steel frame, which is these three main tubes and the fork and the chainstays and the seat stays are all separate pieces of tubing, which are fitted together in sleeves, which are basically what the lugs are. They're angled sleeves so that one tube goes in from one side and the other tube goes in the other and they're welded together. All they are is really a way to attach two tubes together. There's a lot of ways to do it. You can braze them. You can weld them or you can use lugs. And I'm of the school that thinks lugs are beautiful and they're a beautiful way to put these tubes together. It's like a palette, like a place for artists to create design. So these are hand cut by Brian and hand filed by Brian and raised by Brian. And so the early stage before painting, before the filing is done, if you like that kind of thing, which I do, I think it's beautiful. All the details about it. One of
2: the things that Jody Rosen, the author of Two Wheels Good, talked about was that once the bicycle frame was designed in this sort of double triangle diamond formation, it really hasn't changed. This plays with that a little bit, but it is still that same two triangles together for the front and the back of the bike.
3: Yeah. Particularly, there's some English builders. Hetchins is a famous one where they would just make these lugs that would go two or three inches down the frame and down the forks and be very ornate and curvy and Painted with outlines and inlays. Obviously, there's no greater function to those logs. It's just how much decoration can we do? And it gets pretty broke.
2: Right. right. Then, I mean, it's kind of like architecture. Certain buildings have yeah. all the beautiful architecture to make it stand out.
3: At the other extreme, you have a custom bike builder like Richard Sachs, who is maybe the most well known of a guy who, by his own allowance, he would say, I basically make one bike, I make that bike for you or for you, or for you, to your measurements, but if you look at a Richard Sachs bike, the lugs are always going to be pretty much identical. The geometry depends on the rider, but right. the design of the bike, he's got a kind of self-consciously Zen approach, which is, I'm always making the same bike, and I always want to make that bike until that bike approaches perfection.
2: Right. And he's making this bike for you based on the size and all that. Right.
3: Right. Another part of interest is the seat stays, where the seat stays meet the seat tube and that junction. If you look at that on Richard's bike, you'll see he always uses the same kind of ends for his seat stays, the same caps. So that's the other extreme. You don't go to Richard and say, I want X. You go to Richard and say, I want one of your bikes. Right. Okay. And where is Richard? He's in Connecticut. Richard comes from a different school, which is he was in bikes, wanted to learn how to make them, went to England and apprenticed at an old English bike company called Whitcomb. And he and another very well-known, highly regarded bike builder, Peter Weagle, worked there together. They both left, came back to New England, where they were both from, and have for the last 40 years been building individual bikes within like 25 miles of each other. It's kind of remarkable. Wow. They both have these very cozy little cottage-like buildings in the woods of New England where they're making these gorgeous one-off bicycles. So yeah, there have been a bunch of different schools. What got you into it? Well, I rode a bike in college. I had a bike I rode around. And of course, bikes do in college. It got stolen. And I went to graduate school in England. And I thought, OK, well, England is much friendlier to bike as a mode of transportation in general. So I want to get a bike there. And I went to this shop called F.W. Evans, which is an old shop in London, and bought one of their bikes. And it was a kind of a classic, what you call English 10-speed, two chain rings in front and five cogs in the back, and rode that all over the place and loved it. Came back to the United States, moved to LA, led to a friend. It got stolen. And a few years later, I found out about the AIDS ride, which is a bike ride to raise money for AIDS awareness and cure. This was in the late 90s from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Right. And I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to get a bike. And that's when I really started doing research on who was making bikes at that time and really kind of looked into who I wanted to invest in, because I figured this is a once in a lifetime thing, get a custom bike. Little did um, you know. (laughs) Little did I know for sure. But I ended up, after doing a lot of research, I chose a company called Rivendell. Once I got into it, it sort of became a, well, I don't want to say obsession, but I definitely started getting interested in all these bike builders that I'd learned about. And part of it was at some point they started what became an annual thing, the North American Handbuilt Bike Show. And builders from all over the country would come and meet at different places every year. But I actually met Brian because there's a whole different group, which is the San Diego crew. And that school basically started when, in the late 60s, what we know of as the first bike boom really began when everybody wanted a 10-speed bike and campuses were full of mass production. A lot of them were European bikes, commonly known as racing bikes, although nobody raced on them. But they were drop bar bikes, 10-speed bikes, Peugeots, Raleigh's. And there was a prominent Italian company called Masi, which I mentioned before. But Brian, who was a young man, went to work when Massey opened their San Diego workshop to make bikes for the American market, handmade bikes. And they brought a very well-known young builder named Mario Confente to run the shop in San Diego. And Brian was one of several. Now, Bruce Gordon, we mentioned him earlier, he was one of the people trained by Eisentrout. Bay Area builder. Not quite as extreme as Sachs in terms of only making one bike. But a lot of these guys, like many artists, are a little idiosyncratic. And they sort of want to do what they want to do. Bruce Gordon really likes long-distance bikes. They're not really built for racing. They're built for touring.
2: Right. Derailler's fairly long. It's not a really long wheelbase, but there's a little bit more room for the wheelbase. Yeah. Which makes it a smoother, more comfortable ride, maybe a little bit slower.
3: Yeah, more of an all-day bike. And even on that bike, I've got bigger tires than you normally have on a road bike. And there's still room for even bigger tires. Right. Yeah, you're right. a long-cage derailleur, so it's not that far off from what you call a gravel bike now. Right. Craig Calfey was one of the pioneers in carbon fiber bikes, and he was really well known for making really light, strong bikes. And I don't really know how it got started, but he was interested in bamboo. He's not the only one, but the first one I was aware of in using bamboo. And this is not just painted to look like the bamboo tubes, actually black bamboo. And he made them with carbon fiber lugs or the seat tube and the top tube and the head tube and this down tube all meet. That's carbon fiber. And yeah. what he's done since, which is about 20 years ago, he's now using hemp fiber. So, it's even more natural. And he's done a lot about going to lesser developed parts of the world and encouraging this kind of production for people who can make bikes for transportation in South America and Africa using bamboo, which is stupidly available. I mean, bamboo is so easy to grow and so grows so quickly. And the fact that it's strong and light and Comparable to a metal, a steel, or a titanium bike is kind of incredible. I saw one of these, a very early one at a bike shop in Agora, and asked about it and found out that Craig Calfee was making these. So I went up to Santa Cruz, where he was building bikes, and ordered one of those. And it's great. It's a great riding bike. It is it stiffer? My mind. How is the ride? It's kind of similar to titanium in that it's got some give, which makes it more comfortable. I mean, one thing I can say without any fear of contradiction is I'm not a fast rider. I'm not a competitive <laughs> rider. <laughs>
2: to move on from Craig Calfee, such a beautiful bicycle. To me, it's so perfect. It's so streamlined. There's nothing extraneous on the bike at all. Can you tell us about this bike and also where it is?
3: This bike was made by Peter Johnson, who was a very influential bike racer and builder in the 70s, Bay Area, in the Tom Ritchie crowd. But Peter became a very high precision machinist. And that was his primary job, like a millionth of a millimeter quality work. But he also built bicycles. There used to be a sort of Rose Bowl event for cyclists and bike builders. And I would see him at events over the years and seeing some of his bikes. He made very few bicycles and became friendly with him. And finally, his wife said, I bet if you ask Peter, he'd build you a bike. So it actually took over 10 years between the time Peter agreed to build his bike until I got it. And it wasn't because it took that long to make it. He had another job, but the idea was extreme simplicity, extreme detail. The lugs are filed to within an inch of their life. Everything is very fine. It's very jewel-like. He filed the seat post, which I supplied. Everything is sweetened, as he would call it, massaged. So it's a fixed-gear bike. Are they tubulars? And what are the rims? Those are tubulars with Italian wooden rims. Those rims are still available if you want to buy them. I just think they're gorgeous. Right. ash tubular tires. And that was photographed. Paul Smith's store on Melrose in Los Angeles has a pretty famous and often photographed pink wall. Right. And if you look closely, you can see actually that saddle is a Paul Smith signature saddle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I just thought this is kind of the perfect place to put my pink bike and pink saddle. But that bike is really special to me because Peter passed away about a year ago and he was a complete sweetheart, just a wonderful guy, great rider, and amazingly just had a great eye for
4: detail.
2: Well, it's just such a beautiful bike. I love the high flange hubs and the simplicity. Even
3: the toe clips
2: are so handy. They're not straps, they're just little clips so you can
3: ride your normal shoes. Bruce Gordon makes those toe clips. We talked about detailed lugs. These lugs are extremely simple. And Peter actually insisted that the lugs not be outlined or do any contrasting paint. He said he wanted the thinnest paint possible so you could see the work on the bike, how fine it is. So it's a tremendous bike to ride. I love looking at it. Brian Bayless painted this bike because he said no one else can paint as thin a coat of paint as Brian.
5: <laughs>
2: I love that. This wall is near my house, actually, this Paul Smith store. And tourists often line up to take pictures in front of it. So I'm really glad you got <laughs> that one taken. One more before we end. It's a bike that we've already spoken about.
3: So another builder who doesn't build a lot, but is just incredibly detailed. The other extreme from Peter, who is very simple and refined, This bike was built by Rob Robertson, who worked for the bike painter Joe Bell, who painted this bike. And there's something like 84 cutouts on this bike. You can see every lug has little diamonds and crescents, and each one of those is outlined in gold paint. And the seat stake caps are three-dimensional, sort of fleur-de-lis pattern. I mean, it's an amazingly detailed bike. And Rob is another one of these guys who makes incredible stuff.
2: Yeah, it's really beautiful. I wondered if we could end with you talking a little bit about the North American Handmade Bicycle Show. It is coming back this year in September, September 23rd to 25th in Denver after a two-year hiatus from the pandemic. And they did say that if you bought tickets for 2020, that they would honor them in 2022. But there are a few organizations, this one and the show and Oroika, which is the kind of vintage bike ride. And there's even a vintage bike ride in Los Angeles. I wondered if you could just talk about those
3: really quick. The bike show, it's been going for about 15 years, and it was moving from city to city, east coast to west coast, and it got a lot of prominence for drawing attention to builders who might have been known regionally or locally, certainly where I met a bunch of people. The first one I went to was in Portland, but it's got to be about 15 years ago. And it's just one big convention room where you can go see bikes by all these different makers. Richard Sachs was there, Sasha White from Vanilla, Bruce Gordon, Brian Bayless, Joe Bell, the bike painter, a lot of guys who make even crazier designs. And every year as the industry gets more and more established, there's new guys coming up every year and women as well, building bikes. And now they're starting to get international. I mean, Cherubim, the Japanese builder has been going. So it's a really great place just to look at the bike because like with most shows, some of these builders will spend the year making a special show bike for next year's show. Since the hiatus for two years, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be really an amazing, dazzling look at what people are building. And there are regional versions too. There was a San Diego bike show for a few years. There's a Philadelphia bike show, which is pretty prominent on the East Coast. And then Eroica, which started in Tuscany as basically a tension getter for the white gravel roads of Tuscany and Chianti to keep them from being paved over to preserve them. So for many years, it was a ride that was trying to preserve the old school, as it were, and had specific rules about what bike you could ride in this Reich, because they wanted to keep this very traditional experience. So you had to ride a pre-1986 technology bike, which meant down tube shifters or bar end shifters, no brifters, you know, incorporating brakes and shifters in one lever, exposed cables. They didn't want modern pedals with clip-in pedals. You wanted toe clips and straps. I did this ride about 10 years ago, and a lot of people come in literally antique jerseys, antique bike shorts, tubulars slung over their shoulders. Goggles. Yeah, goggles and hairnet. And it's a different length, but generally you ride about 90 miles, about 60% of it on these white gravel roads, the Stada Bianca. And they've started to go international with that. And there's been one in California for the past six or seven years with the same idea to ride off pavement. On pre-modern technology, a difficult ride. Through vineyards and on
2: dirt roads. I'll add one of the fun things at the rest stops, they serve wine.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, in Italy, in the rest stops, a lot of times the people who are actually doing the support are in period costume, peasant blouses and pantaloons, and they'll have white beans in a cast iron pot over open fire and five right. gallon bottles of wine we just pour into a cup or just chug from. And it's a little bit of a Recreator, button. A bit
2: like Civil War reenactments.
3: Exactly. Reenactors. That's what I meant yeah. to say. But it's tremendously fun. Again, people will spend the year prepping their 1975 Colnago so they can ride it in Eroica, California in the spring. So it's a super fun event. And especially if you like steel bikes, which I clearly do. Totally. I do have a few titanium bikes.
2: I want to end really quick on two notes. Bicycles now can cost four, five, six, $10,000. How much more are you paying for a handmade bike of a certain quality than you might pay for a similar quality factory bike, a track or something that's out in the marketplace now at your local bike shop?
3: Well, it's hard to compare. You can get a really good bike, brand new, for $2,000, a bike that'll go pretty much anywhere you want to go, assuming you're not using it to race. If you want to do recreational, whether you want to do touring or off-road gravel riding or some combination of the two hill climbing, you can buy a really good bike for $2,000, which won't buy you a frame from one of these builders. Right. On the other hand, you can buy a carbon fiber race bike for $15,000, which would buy you a really gorgeous custom bike from a craftsman. Now for me, like I said, to get a bike that weighs 13 pounds made out of carbon fiber is not very exciting (laughs) because it's a plastic bike, it's mass produced, and it's eminently breakable you crash on that bike and the chances are you're going to have to look very carefully to see if there's any cracks in the frame. Whereas if you buy a steel bike, if you crash, you're going to feel sad because the paint is scratched, but the bike is not likely to be damaged in any functional way. And you're getting a bike from an artist, which to me is part of the fun be able to ride a bike and say, I met the guy who made this bike and he made it for me. Right. We have that connection and this bike is unique. Special.
2: Yeah. One last question. If someone's in the market for a handmade bike, where do you recommend that they start looking?
3: Well, if they can, the North American Handbuilt Bike Show is a great place to start because you're going to get your mind blown by what people are making, how beautiful they are. And one day you can meet 20 different builders and say, wow, I really clicked with this guy or I love what he's doing. Otherwise, you go to their website, the handbuilt Bike Show, and see who's exhibiting there. You call your bike shop or local aficionado and say, Who's making bikes around here? I mean, for a lot of people, it'd be really important to say, who's making bikes in LA or who's making bikes in Chicago that I can go visit and buy a bike from? There are a lot of people all over the country who are making a bike a week or a bike a month even. They've got a regular job and this is a side hobby for them and that's what they're doing. It's not that hard to find. A lot easier now than it was when I started looking 20 years ago
2: well Aaron thanks for sharing your time and your expertise and your beautiful bikes I've really enjoyed talking about it and kind of getting into the minutiae of what makes a bike special and all that I've always enjoyed seeing your bikes
3: well thanks I love talking about them like I said I can go on for hours but hope it's interesting for other people who are looking for something unique and theirs
2: absolutely thanks very much
3: all right thank you
0: now an interview with Stacy Randecker at the recent Grand Embarcadero Slow Ride in San Francisco. Stacy, you're on a slow ride at the Ferry Building in San Francisco, and this is a regular ride?
4: It's a regular ride in that it's always been at the Great Walkway. Its former name is the Great Highway. That stretches about two miles alongside the Pacific Ocean. And during the pandemic, when the sand started blowing, as it always does, Onto the highway, the district supervisor that's out there said, people shouldn't be out right now. And voila, we had a park. (laughs) And they kept it that way for the bulk of the pandemic. But nearly a year ago, when the school district started back up, they reopened it to cars because they were like, oh, well, only kids need this, right? (laughs) So there won't be as much demand for it. And people need to get places. And so they turned it during the week back into a highway, and then we would get it on the weekends. So this group, as a sort of protest, would on Thursday evenings, the night before it returned on Friday at noon, back to a park, they would do these slow rides where a whole group of them would get on their bikes en masse and just ride slowly in front of the traffic, blaring horns, cursing, awful behavior from the drivers because people on bikes were trying to say, nope, this should be a park. They used to do it every week. Then they were like, all right, this is a lot. that We'll do it once a month. And this is the first time they, they've made a guest appearance at another location. And it's one of my favorites, which is what should be the Grand Embarcadero. This is the Eastern waterfront, beautiful waterfront. You see the Bay Bridge, the Bay Bridge lights at night, Cupid Span, the absolutely ginormous bow and arrow shooting into um, the coastline. It's still a surface level highway. There are three lanes of traffic in each direction and spotty to no bike facilities. Well, I mean, paint. We think that it should be just for people, much like the Seine was converted in Paris. That used to be a roadway. And now it is a gorgeous linear park along the water. We'd like to do the same over here. Yeah, so, so we're having this... a slow ride.
0: Yeah. Do you expect you'll have all the honking and cursing from, from drivers?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's some people who might be able to tolerate it. There are also more options to turn. On the Great Walkway, you can't turn off of it. And that's the thing that is so annoying is, you know, you can't even say it's for normal traffic. It's like another highway, but there's a beach (laughs) right there. If people are super annoyed, they can at least escape. And we hope that's what they'll do because we don't want them on here.
0: (laughs) You did something pretty amazing. This kind of, I don't know if you'd call it civil disobedience recently, where you by yourself held up traffic.
4: Believe me, that was so unplanned. It just happened. Like I happened to be there when the street fair was ordering people off of the street. Street fair's over, open to cars. And I just froze because I thought this is the street that I've been trying to get closed to be just for people for ages. And I was handing out flyers for this and they're telling me to leave. And no, that's the whole point, I don't want people to have to leave. It should be for people all the time. We shouldn't have to Do everything just because the cars say so. It's like the most bully mentality ever. I could kill you with this thing. Get out of my way. There are thousands of other streets here that can be driven upon. We need to have some that are for people. So holding up cars is, I don't have a problem with it. And believe me, I have to drive at times too. I'm a mom of two teenagers and everything isn't located as conveniently as possible. But I try to do it as little as possible. I understand the frustration, but people have to get shaken out of this. Cars are everything. Cars win. Cars rule. Level of service. Everything is for them. We're burning the planet. 46,020 people were killed in America by drivers. We have to start breaking out of this. These actions are small attempts to get people to try and recognize what damage cars and, and driving cause, especially in cities around people.
0: Do they recognize when these rides happen when you close the streets?
4: I don't know. I mean, we don't. They're in their car. They're, that's the other thing. They're sealed off from the world. They're not interacting with their fellow people. <laughs> They are in their own little bubble going from A to B without care for anyone else. It's them and how fast can they get there, et cetera, as witnessed by the close pass on the way here. Like they're racing to a red light. I mean, they can't see that it's red ahead of them. I can. And they're intimidating me, maybe not even intentionally, just because they've got to get there. We have to help people break out of this, hopefully over time, we can get people to kind of get it. The other thing that I love about these slow rides is, you know, I'm standing there, you know, on my own and getting arrested on Valencia Street because I'm alone. What are you going to do when there's 30 of us, when there's 50 of us? It's much safer to travel together, you know? Um, thank you. <laughs> um, you so so if you're you're together you're bigger you're seen they avoid you whether it's the drivers or the authorities hopefully we can get people to start being more aware and and also make it safer for them to come out and join as well
0: there are different kinds of activism and advocacy and there's a good example of two approaches i think the 28th
4: The one that I'll be participating in, we're calling it the Night of Jam. And Jam is just a minute. If you look it up, it's definitely on Twitter, maybe TikTok and YouTube, I don't know. But what it is, is so Valencia Street, the street that I love, that's full of restaurants and galleries and retail shops and little parks and schools and churches. It is high demand. People want to be there. And so people are driving there. People are parking there. They double park there. They're picking up to go orders, you know, and it's like it clogs the bike lanes. So the people on bikes have to go out into traffic, and that makes it less safe. There is a collision almost every day. You have people on bikes avoiding it, like the plague. Just a minute is a group of at least five, will get together, bullhorn signs, etc., all in matching yellow tees. We will make a bike lane. We stop traffic and we say it's just a minute. Just like that driver is saying, like, oh, I'm, I'm in the bike lane. Oh, it'll be just a minute. And that's what we tell the drivers behind him. It'll be just a minute. They're doing something very important. We will be out of your hair. We're just making a safe path for the people on bikes to get through just a minute. And as soon as that driver leaves, we thank them for their patience. And we go back to the sidewalk because the bike lane has been restored. My, you know, my solution is have one pedestrianized streets in this, the second most densely populated city in the United States, just like they do in other cities and um, especially around the world. Uh, We deserve that. And this is a prime example of where it should be. Um, And if you remove the cars, then you've kind of removed all the problem and you've made it a much lovelier area to walk, shop, dine, gather, protest, whatever they want, without fear of being hit and injured or killed by cars. So we've done it on Valencia a, a number of times. This time, the night of jam is going to be at least three different locations in the city that are susceptible to the same behavior. The bike lane gets blocked by people thoughtless or just hardworking and picking up their to-go order, you know, to deliver to someone else. So yeah. it will be three different streets on that night, night of jam.
0: And you have to find somebody blocking the lane, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, you just wait. And we've had another group, Bike Grid Now in Chicago. They did one once that I saw. It was so great. They did it in a neighborhood that's a little more spread out. um, So they had to wait a lot longer. On Valencia Street, you'd have three cars on one side of the street parked in the bike lane. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's not like you have to wait. It happens so often. Those are the types of streets where this sort of action works well where there is high demand and drivers will double park there's no pickup drop-off scheme that's what we're doing on the 28th
0: is it called just a minute in chicago too
4: yeah they tagged it like if you go on twitter and you search for hashtag just a minute i'm sure you'll you'll see it um bike grid now is the group that was doing it hashtag just a minute hashtag jam j-a-m that'll get you a couple different things but you'll inevitably see this
0: This is a complicated problem because there's people who are working at food delivery and this is how it's set up. So they have to do this. Is there um, some kind of a A solution? solution?
4: Oh yeah. You know what it is? It is every one of those companies that is sending the the drivers there, Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub. We need to work with them to have all the cargo bike, e-bike, bike delivery people assigned to that corridor. That's what we should be doing because they know what they are and they know whether they are in a car or on a bike, they have to sign in that way. We should be asking them to route it so that we don't have these conflicts occurring. If that's impossible, which it shouldn't be, we we need to look at a way that we have a pickup and drop off scheme where these uh, places are, you know, just five minutes and you have to have a certain, you know, shield or whatever, and it is not the bike lane remove parking. There are so many ways around this, but no one's willing to do it because nobody that I've seen has the courage to stand up to cars and drivers and say, we have to do things differently. Yeah.
0: Is that changing? Do you think that's what we're all about? Yeah. And so tell me
4: about the other event. Oh, so the other event is it's like borderline disturbing. It's um, the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition Um, which is supposed to be our main advocacy group that we all line up behind and they, you know, help tell us what to do and how to get what we want. They've been unbelievably ineffective over the years. And what it seems like now is they're essentially a rubber stamp on whatever SFMTA, whatever the mayor elected, whatever they want. Um, Bike Coalition has no resistance and just says, yeah, okay, that's fine, instead of pushing hard to how many things can we change. um, They're not driving that at all. They haven't been, um, and we don't see that happening for the future. And that was sort of cemented by the fact that this year for their banquet, which is also next Thursday on June 28th, they are giving a golden wheel their highest award to our mayor she's the one who called the supervisors and said we're going to open the great walkway to cars during the week a year ago after the sfmta board approved slow lake street and said we're going to make this permanent she swept in and said, No, we're not doing this. It took digging and sunshine information requests to find this out. But sure enough, she's the one who pulled the strings on that because wealthy people that live on that street didn't like it. And they want to drive their cars, you know, a small majority of them wish to do this, their deep pockets did the talking. It's galling that our advocacy organization would honor her when she has not stepped up in this way for us
0: this kind of tension between street activists and professional advocacy organizations is not uncommon, (laughs) right? The advocacy organizations work so closely with the agencies.
4: Well, when you look at the track record of what they've gotten, they haven't put forth an agenda that was beyond what was already proposed by the agencies and gotten it done. They're basically there to say, Yes. People on bikes say yes. You know, it's like we're all alone. You know, we're out here, each person fighting in the bike lanes or lack thereof every day. And we're the ones who are just like by ourselves. This doesn't seem right. Why isn't it better in a city like this? We're not getting the bike lanes or the slow or no car streets that we should. And so it really makes you wonder what are the advocacy organizations doing if we're not getting any more than what the agencies put forth on their own. Oh, well, we have to keep good relationships and whatever. I'm sorry, if you can't move the needle on the whole reason for your organization, then what are you? And they're not delivering on the promise of better biking in this city, and they know better. They know what we should be doing. That's almost worse than those who are just ignorant. Um, Because biking isn't their thing.
0: Well, I guess your ride's about to start, Stacey.
4: Yeah. I don't want to miss the beginning of it. I'm super excited to head out with everyone. And um, yeah, make some good trouble.
0: Well, have a good slow jam.
4: Thanks so much. Bye.
0: Now we have an interview with Ronnie and Emily with Chicago Bike Grid.
6: My name is Ronnie Islam, and I'm one of four organizers with Chicago Bike Grid Now, And we're advocating and calling for a bike grid in the city of Chicago, where at least 10% of streets are designated and um, designed to be bike prioritized. So that's 450 miles of streets out of Chicago's 4,500 miles. There's a lot of advocacy groups out here in Chicago, like Active Trans, Better Street Chicago, and they have a lot of projects under their belt. And we just kind of try to focus on one thing and one thing only. It's easy to send the message when it's just in the name, bike grid now. A lot of networks in the United States, they've got protected bike lanes maybe, and they just kind of start and end in random places. Same thing in Chicago. Uh, It's really hard to get somewhere using only protected bike lanes. So if we have a bike grid, folks can get around the entire city without ever having to to worry about being dumped out into an arterial or an urban highway or any of that kind of things. How much has to be done to get a bike grid? CDOT puts a mile of barrier-protected bike lanes at $200,000. So 450 miles of that would cost us anywhere between $90 to $120 million, which is nothing compared to how much money we spend on car centric infrastructure in the city. We've got an interchange in downtown Chicago that's been undergoing renovations since like 2013 and we've dumped 800 to $900 million into that. So getting a citywide network would be paltry compared to how much money we're spending on car infrastructure.
0: From your online presence, I, I get a sense of you being this real grassroots, street level campaign. But it sounds like you're also, you're organized. You have kind of a professional outlook. You want to just give me a a sense of how you do your thing?
6: Nate, he's on vacation right now, organized the first bike jam. And there were about nine of us, right, Emily? Yeah. Yeah. It was quite small to start. Yeah. And we just kind of like jammed up traffic and rode our bikes uh, in a loop. And that was kind of the beginning. And after that, we kind of saw... A really strong demand from folks in chicago and wanting safer streets for everyone and then we had a couple other bike jams and we grew to like 20 people then 50 and then we had one bike jam we led in honor of two toddlers that were killed in chicago and we had like 100 folks join that one so we really grew fast And then we realized we needed a platform and we needed something easy for people to digest. So we pivoted into this like organizing mode. We put a website together. We got our like social media together. Emily led a lot of our like design and branding work. She does all of the flyers for the bike jams, as well as all the other like design assets. We had a mayoral candidate come out and join us. We had And alderman come out and join us. It started off kind of like, oh, let's see if there's folks out there who wanna do this. And then quickly moved into a um, political, grassroots advocacy kind of thing. But at the heart of it all, it's just a bunch of people on bikes, rollerblades, skateboards, electric unicycles that get together on a weekly basis and draw attention to the need for a bike grid in Chicago.
7: Yeah, what I think is the most powerful about it is that it's centered around action. So we have like weekly events where we gather ourselves together and promote kind of like a reclaiming of space in the city because we are constantly sidelined and we're constantly victims of vehicular violence. So it feels very powerful to be able to take back some of that space and to like allow ourselves like a sense of community as well.
0: Is this sort of like a critical mass, but it's different?
7: Yeah, I would say similar, but different. Um, The pace we ride at is much slower and has a much different goal um, because it's not only the community building, but it's also to um, promote awareness outside of our community and kind of show drivers what we're facing and to add like a slight inconvenience and to make them think more about like the space that vehicles take up versus the space that cyclists take up. And it's really interesting to see in our bike jams, like the amount of space that say 50 cyclists are occupying on the street versus the traffic jam behind us. It's almost like the same number of people. And yet the traffic jam behind us spans multiple blocks and we're just a tight pack of cyclists in front of it. So I think it's a really powerful image.
0: Yeah. And what kind of reactions do you get?
7: (laughs) We've had multiple different types of reactions, I think. The ones that are the best are people from cars cheering us on, like honking their horns in a positive way and like waving and us handing out flyers to them. Because a lot of the times what we get is support. And I think that's amazing. And a lot of people who are driving, they have to drive. They're not choosing to be in vehicles and they're seeing how much joy we get out of being out on the streets on our bicycles, having a good time. But then there are also the adverse reactions, the people who are in their cars, they're angry at us, they honk, they swerve around us. But I would say that's a very small percentage of the interactions we do get, although they do stand out because of the nature of those more violent and aggressive reactions.
6: And I would also say like cyclists who ride past us, oftentimes Mm -hmm. they're like clapping their hands or like pedestrians will like shout out and support. I remember once we were riding past a Target, and we started heckling this guy who was locking up his bike <laughs> and like trying to encourage him to join us. And he was like, oh, I wish, but I got to do this thing, whatever. And then at the end of the jam, he like rolls up uh, and is like, I really wanted to join, but I do this thing. And he's joined a couple more jams. So it- It's really infectious, I think, in a good way.
0: Yeah, it's harder for people in cars to get mad <laughs> when people are enjoying themselves.
7: Oh, for sure. It's like, what's really disarming is that we're just like playing music. We're having a good time. We wave at people in their cars. We smile at them. Like we want them to like feel empowered to get on their bikes too. And I think they see us having fun and they're like, oh wow. Like I kind of want to be a part of that too, you know?
6: Yeah, we've got a jammer. His name is Pookie and he's got this trailer with this like massive speaker on it. And when he jams with us, he's like blasting music. And I think it's just like totally de-escalates any kind of like negative reaction from drivers and motorists because it's just like a party. We're just like hanging out, having fun while also calling attention to something that's really important and like, you know. On top of mind for so many Chicagoans who are affected by traffic violence on a daily basis.
0: The bike grid, the connected network of bike lanes, that's what you're going for.
6: Exactly. And we've got like posters and flags that all say like bike grid now. And there's just a grid on like the outline of the city of Chicago. It's a really clear message um, that we try to send over so people can understand it as quickly as possible. Um, We've also got these like quarter sheet flyers that we hand out that has. Our demands on it and what a bike grid could look like. It's really something easy to digest for folks who were just riding past.
0: For people who want to learn more,
6: get involved, join your rides,
0: your social media, your website, can you put those out there?
6: We are bikegridnow.org. And then on social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at bikegridnow.
0: And when's your next ride? Today. It's
6: actually, today we're going to be riding at 5.30 p.m. Central Time from the Recyclery in Rogers Park. For those of you listening, that's the past. But it's, <laughs> it's good to know that you're about to go. And thanks for
0: coming on. I hope we get to hear from you again. Yeah, yeah thank, you, thank you, so you so much for much having,
5: having us. us. <laughs>
0: So, I'm with Madeline Bonsma Fisher. You're currently finishing your PhD in theoretical biophysics. You're on the board of Bike Ottawa, where you've worked as a volunteer for their data working group. That's great. And now you're on the board. Yeah. You're about to go do research on where to put bike infrastructure, right?
5: Yeah. So, you know, mostly when we're adding bike infrastructure, that means we're taking space away from something else usually cars because they you know have outside space in our cities. And that's really lately. That's really what I, I notice a lot is when I'm walking on the sidewalk, I'm always looking at who else is out here walking and then how many cars are passing us and how much space is given over to us walking versus people in their car or people biking. Once you see it, you can't see it. You really just see that there's so much space for cars everywhere. Even when there's just not that many cars, it doesn't really make sense to have this much space to vote in cars.
0: So you're going to start a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Toronto. Your project is about where to put bike lanes in Canadian cities?
5: The research question is really, if you are, say, the city of Toronto and you want to install some bike infrastructure and you have a certain budget for it, you know, traditionally a city planner or an urban planner would look at a map and say, okay, well, these are the places where like it looks like it makes sense to add bike infrastructure or it would be based on um, what they know about the streets and that kind of thing. Um, And these are definitely great ways to decide, but they require a lot of expertise and they tend to result in situations where you're adding bike infrastructure where there already is a lot of infrastructure or um, where it kind of looks like it makes sense on a map. but doesn't necessarily make sense in practice. So the project is to um, kind of approach this problem computationally. This is not a replacement for the expertise of of anyone involved, but if you take, you know, your region of of city that you're looking at, you map out how many people live in each area, where are the various amenities like schools and parks and grocery stores and jobs. And then you can count um, based on the existing bike infrastructure, let's say, how many people have access to how many jobs and various other amenities within a 30 minute radius on a network of safe routes. So importantly, you have to be able to use a safe route to get there. Otherwise, people aren't going to bike, which is what we know from research, is that people really don't feel comfortable biking on these very stressful roads. The next part of that to optimize new infrastructure is to take that same map and that same network of roads that are rated for stress and say, if we converted this road from a level of four stress, which is very stressful, to a level of two stress, which is not much less stressful, Um, how much would that increase the access of people and network to various things? The additional piece there is we wanna take a look at um, where equity comes into play. So uh, we know that there are areas of the city that are very underserved by bike infrastructure, and these can often be areas where people also don't own cars. So for instance, in Toronto, uh, the region of Scarborough has lower car ownership uh, and lower income relative to the other parts of the city, but also very little walking and bike infrastructure. So it's important to kind of try to assess, are we making kind of a rich get richer situation when we optimize this problem for the existing network? Can we put bike lanes in places that are going to serve people who have been underserved by the infrastructure? The basis of this algorithm, which is this level of traffic stress map, uh, I don't think it was done first in Toronto. I think it was done first in other cities and kind of replicated in Toronto. And then one of my projects will be to replicate this for other cities as well. So to go in and evaluate Uh, based on existing data for those streets and intersections, what the rating should be for the streets.
0: There's computations going on furiously around the world.
5: It's not a solved problem by any means. You know, 50 years ago, the paradigm of urban planning was very different. There was this prioritization of traffic flow. As somebody who like, I feel like I'm relatively new to the advocacy space within the last five or 10 years. You look around, you think, oh, obviously we should have like more bike infrastructure and we should have more space for people in cities. It's also kind of new in the collective sense that people are thinking that because you know 50 years ago the speed and free flow of traffic of cars was prioritized in terms of where we were building roads, how big they were, you know whether you would have to cut down trees to make clear zones for roads. It was not about how is everyone getting around outside of a car. It was about how can we make cars travel the fastest in cities. Even when you still see level of service as a reason why we can't you know change the road configuration to make it safer, that's still putting traffic flow over the movement of everyone else and the safety of everyone else in cities.
0: What was being serviced was drivers.
5: Right, and if you were, if you would see, you know, level service A means free uninterrupted traffic flow. I just read the book, um, Confessions of a Recovering Engineer by... uh, Oh, yeah. It was really good, and I I think it was really good for understanding some of this kind of history and lingo in this space. He really made a great point, which is that a level service A is like an anti-place where cars are traveling freely is a place where nobody actually wants to be because Hmm. you can't have, you know, people standing around or you can't have objects in the way of free flowing traffic. So this is kind of directly at odds with building a place people actually want to be. And that was kind of an interesting revelation for me.
0: We're at a place of a new understanding. I guess we're replacing the old understanding. Is there much of a conflict between the old understanding and the new?
5: Yes. I would say definitely. If you go to any planning meeting, or talk to city staff. In many places, there's still, um, you know, you might find staff who are still thinking in the the old way of that they want to put traffic flow over safety. And you might find, say, city councillors or politicians or residents who want something different. There's a lot of conflict, potential for conflict. And it frustrates me because it feels like we can all win. You know, we can all have something better, even for people driving
0: you want to explain that?
5: Yeah. So, I mean, I can give like an anecdote. So for instance, well, I live in Ottawa, but I was talking to a friend who lives in Toronto. Uh, He was telling me about the new bike lanes that have been put in on Danforth Avenue. So Danforth Avenue, like many streets in Toronto, was formerly four lanes, two lanes in each direction of cars. And the outer lanes were used for kind of intermittent parking, depending on the time of day, uh, deliveries, that kind of thing. And the city recently reconfigured it to have a bike lane and two travel lanes for cars with some parking as well, depending on how wide the street was. So they removed some on-street parking, removed a travel lane for cars and added this permanent bike lane. And he said that it's actually a lot simpler to drive on now, much less stressful to drive on because you're not worried about changing lanes. You're not worried about people cutting up beside you all the time, whether they're in a car or on a bike. It just feels a lot more uh, simple to navigate even in a car. And if you look at things like the travel time for vehicles when they put bike lanes in on a configuration like this, often it's very minimally impacted. Many of the travel time impacts for cars can be just adjusted with, with, say, traffic light retiming. So, you know, safety goes way up for cyclists and pedestrians as well because the road distances to cross are shorter. Comfort level goes up for everyone. The pleasantness of the street is way higher. And, you know, cars have a more pleasant experience as well.
0: With a street that is more livable, or complete. Everybody in society is happier.
5: Right. Like if you, if you survey people coming to the street, they will say almost across the board that they like the new Street better. And yeah. yeah, I think everybody wins in that, in that situation.
0: Thanks, Madeline Bonsma-Fisher. I hope to see the research you do.
5: Thanks very much for joining.
0: Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. Thanks to co-hosts Taylor Nichols and Galen Mook. Editing by Kevin Burton. Archives are at biketalk.org. Have a good
1: week.